are listening to a message from Bethany First Church of the Nazarene, online at bethanynaz.org. Well, good morning. It's good to be with you this morning. Appreciate Pastor Rick allowing me to speak in his absence today. If you have your Bibles, I encourage you to turn with me to Matthew chapter 17. I'll be reading verses 1 through 9. Matthew 17, beginning with verse 1. I invite you to hear the word of the Lord. After six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, the brother of James, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. There he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun, and his clothes became as white as the light. Just then there appeared before them Moses and Elijah, talking with Jesus. Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, I will put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. While he was still speaking, a bright cloud covered them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell face down to the ground, terrified. But Jesus came and touched them. Get up, he said. Don't be afraid. When they looked up, they saw no one except Jesus. As they were coming down the mountain, Jesus instructed them, don't tell anyone what you've seen until the Son of Man has been raised from the dead. Let's pray together. Gracious Father, we give you thanks today for the gift of your word and for the gift of your Holy Spirit. Our prayer in these moments is that you would join these gifts, that by your Spirit's presence and power among us, we might hear your living word in this place. And having heard your word, may we go from here to live your word, that our lives might bring glory to you in all things. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Summers for me as I was growing up, summers usually meant time with family reunions and family gatherings. On my dad's side of the family, aunts and uncles and cousins were almost all in southern Indiana. And my mom's side of the family, we had grandparents, aunts and uncles and cousins who lived in Louisiana. And summertime always meant getting together with family. There would be these reunions where there were always stories, family stories with names of relatives that when I was a kid, I wasn't always real familiar with. For the older relatives, they would just take the mention of a name, Aunt Maud, Uncle Horace, Grandma Mead. Just the mention of a name would bring for them back this flood of memories and stories But as a kid, I always had to be reminded of what their story was and who they were. I gradually, as I got older, began to remember the the names, but I always had to be prompted and refreshed on what their story was. And our text for this morning is kind of like that. For most of us, the names are familiar. Peter, James, and John, Jesus, Moses, Elijah. We remember their names, but we may need some prompting to remember their stories. So listen again to their story. At the end of chapter 16 in Matthew's gospel, Jesus has just told his disciples for the very first time that he is facing death. He tells them he must go to Jerusalem, he'll suffer many things, and he will be crucified, and on the third day he'll be raised to life. And Peter instantly, abruptly says, never, Lord, that can never happen. And Jesus turns and says to Peter, get behind me, Satan. The things you're thinking are not of the mind of God, but the mind of men. You are a stumbling block to me. And Jesus then tells his disciples, 
that if anyone would be a disciple, they must take up a cross and follow him. So chapter 16 ends with that dialogue. And then for six days, nothing else is recorded. Six days of silence. And I imagine for that those six days, those words kind of hung heavy in the air, like a cloud over them. To hear Jesus announce he was going to be crucified. To hear him say that they too must take up a cross and follow him. And then days of wrestling with the meaning of that trying to make sense of it all. Those harsh words, get behind me, Satan. And then six days of silence. But Matthew says that after six days, Jesus calls Peter, whom he had so strongly rebuked, and he calls James and John, and he says, let's go, come, follow me. And he he leads them up a mountain. He doesn't take all the disciples, but just these three. And he has them follow him up this mountain. Now, if you are a careful reader, of the Gospel of Matthew, you'll know that there are several mountain experiences in the Gospel. Do you remember some of them? In chapter four, in the midst of Jesus, 40 days in the wilderness, right after his baptism, he's led by the Spirit into the wilderness, and in that time, Satan comes and takes him to a high mountain where he can see all the world, and Satan says, all this splendor can be yours if you'll just bow down and worship me. Well, in chapters five, six, and seven, Jesus walks up another mountain and he begins to preach and we call it the Sermon on the Mount, really the core of his teaching as he preached on that mountainside. In chapter 15, Jesus goes up another mountainside and we hear the story of the feeding of the 4,000. In chapter 26, just after the Last Supper, Jesus leads his disciples to the Mount of Olives. And the very last scene in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 28, is another mountaintop scene. Jesus has drawn his disciples to this mountain in Galilee and in that place just before his ascension, he gives them the great commission. So anytime you see a reference to a mountain in Matthew, you should kind of take note. But of all the mountain scenes in Matthew's gospel, this one in chapter 17 is the one that's described in the most vivid detail. Jesus' appearance was dazzling, almost unexplainable. His his face shone like the sun. His clothes were as white as light. There is this kind of language that you so often hear when people have this supernatural encounter with the presence of God. Light, almost blinding light. And then Moses and Elijah appear. Those names, again, we know the names, but what's their story? For Peter, James, and John, it's kind of like this this hall of fame mountain experience story. This picture of Jesus in all of his glory, standing next to Moses, who had had his own encounter with God on Mount Sinai in the Old Testament. And Moses' encounter, when he had that face-to-face encounter with God, it was so incredible that when he received the law from God, he came down the mountain and there was this glow. His face was glowing because he'd been in God's presence. So on this mountain, there's Jesus and Moses and Elijah. And Elijah was the one who'd had that dramatic showdown on Mount Carmel with the prophets of Baal, that that contest, the 700 prophets against the one prophet of God. And the, the, the terms of the contest were this. They would sacrifice a bull on the altar. And whichever God consumed that bull by fire would be the true God. Well, the prophets of God 
prophets of Baal called on their God to consume the sacrifice with fire, but there was not even a spark. But Elijah takes his turn and I think just to kind of show off of how good his God was, he said, I won't just ask God to to consume this. I'm gonna, I'm gonna drench it all with water. So he takes 12 containers of water and soaks the sacrifice in the altar and he prays for God to consume the sacrifice and his prayer unleashed God's power which came in fire. And the writer in 1 Kings says it burned up the sacrifice, the wood, the stones, the soil and all the water that had been poured on it. An amazing mountaintop experience But this one in Matthew 17 is kind of the mountaintop experience of all mountaintop experiences. There are so many themes that kind of merge and kind of explode with meaning in the scene. Moses representing the law, Elijah representing the prophets, and Christ there is the fulfillment of both law and prophets. There's this picture of Moses who who died and was buried by God himself, standing next to Elijah, who never died. He was whisked away by chariots of fire and this whirlwind took him off into heaven without him dying. And there's this theme of Moses who died just short of the promised land, but now is standing on a mountain in the promised land as God has fulfilled his promises to his people. There's almost more themes converging here that we can keep track of. But the story doesn't tell us immediately what was the meaning of this in the life of Peter, James, and John. If they had taken a selfie on that mountain, What picture would that have given them? Where would that moment show up in the overarching story of their lives? Matthew doesn't tell us immediately what this story is all about. 12 years ago, Liz and I found ourselves planning for both a college graduation and a wedding in the same summer when our oldest daughter graduated and got married. And around our household, we're gearing up for another summer pretty much like that again. Our youngest daughter is graduating in May and getting married in June. And so in a couple of weeks, we're gonna begin that process that we did those 12 years ago when we begin gathering photos and memories to put together a slideshow for a graduation party and for a wedding rehearsal dinner. And I still remember that process of kind of dusting off the old dusty photo albums and consolidating digital pictures from this laptop or that memory drive or that, that uh, memory stick in a camera or our phones. We're getting ready to unpack all those memories and to kind of dig through those old boxes of home videos as we get ready for these trips down memory lane in May and June. And whenever you sit down and begin to look through those old family stories and memories that you've recorded, the most striking thing of all is how much we've changed. It's easily obvious with the kids, the progression of pictures from cradle to being held in a rocking chair to those first wobbly steps across the living room carpet floor to basketball games and birthday parties and VBS programs and all the memories of their first 22 years of life. It's obvious you can't miss the growth and maturity in their lives as you put those memories together. But I've been wondering though, what would it look like for all of us if we were somehow able to picture our spiritual life? What if there's some way that you could capture a snapshot of your spiritual life 10, 20, 30 years ago? 
If you could take that image and hold it up next to a picture of your spiritual life today, would it be obvious that you've grown, that you've matured? You know, when you get past about the age of 40, the word you love to hear when someone sees a picture of you 20 years ago, you love to hear, you haven't changed a bit. But in our spiritual life, that's not really a compliment. We're part of a tradition that believes and teaches that we should always be growing and maturing spiritually, that there should never be a point in which we say, well, we've quit changing, we've quit growing. And so I'll ask you again, if you had a snapshot of your spiritual life 10, 20, 30 years ago, and held that next to a snapshot of your spiritual life today, how have you grown? How have you matured? And when you begin to ask questions about if you've grown, you also begin to ask, well, how do you grow spiritually? What does it take to grow spiritually? And some folks would point to passages like this one we heard this morning, Matthew 17. Some folks would point to experiences like this and say, this is kind of the meat and potatoes of our spiritual growth, our spiritual life. We grow the most by these dramatic encounters with God in his presence where amazing things happen. And we even call those experiences mountaintop experiences. Maybe at a youth camp or in a revival or at a retreat or at an assembly. Times when we go to a special place and encounter God in that place. But what, what role do mountaintop experiences really have in our spiritual journey? Now, unlike Pastor Rick, I was not raised in a small Kentucky town. <laughs> However, I did go to college in a small Kentucky town. In August of 1981, I started college in the small Kentucky town of Wilmore at a small Christian school called Asbury College. And it probably didn't take more than about a week or two of being in chapel in that freshman year until we began to hear stories of a great revival that had broken out on that campus in Hughes Auditorium in 1970 on February the 3rd. And we heard often about that move of God in that very same place, Hughes Auditorium, how revival broke out. It had not been planned But spontaneously, students began to gather and continue to gather around the clock, and they stayed for days as the Spirit of God descended upon that place. And service has continued for a full week, and students from other college campuses across the United States came, and it spilled over to those other campuses. The impact of that revival in 1970 spread far and wide. And as you've already heard mentioned this morning, you heard Pastor Rick mention that last week, there is another revival going on in that very same space. Hughes Auditorium, Asbury College, Wilmore, Kentucky. It started on February the 8th and it continues today. And stories are amazing of the spontaneous work of God that's taking place there. Now it's not the transfiguration, it's not Jesus, Moses, and Elijah, but it is a place where people are giving testimony to extraordinary senses of God's presence and his glory. So what do we do with that kind of experience? What are the people that have been there in person? What should they do? 
Well, in his experience, Peter wanted just to camp out and stay on that mountain. His unsolicited offer to Jesus was, I can build three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah, so we can just stay in this place forever. But Matthew doesn't record that Jesus even gave a response to Peter. Without answering Peter's offer, instead Jesus leads Peter, James, and John down the mountain and tells them, don't tell anyone a word of what you've seen until after the resurrection. You see, there's no indication that Jesus wanted his, wanted his disciples to try to duplicate this experience. He didn't invite all the disciples up there with him, just those three. He didn't take Peter up on his offer to build shelter so they could stay there forever. He told the disciples, don't tell anyone until after the resurrection. So what is this story about if it's not a model to be duplicated? I'm convinced it's about this. This story is giving us a lens through which to think about and view the cross of Christ. It begins to give the disciples a framework through which they can see that the cross and the glory of God are not incompatible. It gives them the lens through which they can see this event forces them to think that cross and glory can be said in the same breath. You see the story comes right on the heels of Jesus talking about the cross for the first time. He tells them he must suffer and die and then he'll be raised from the dead. And as you remember, that announcement didn't sit very well with the disciples, especially with Peter. When Peter insists that the crucifixion must never happen, Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. He says that mindset comes not from God, but from the devil. And then there are those six days of silence. And the very next recorded scene is this scene on the mountain. The announcement of the cross is followed by the scene on the high mountain. The scene in which the disciples hear the very words of God saying, this is my son whom I love. With him I'm well pleased. Listen to him. And so the transfiguration is the beginning of this idea of working its way into the hearts and minds of the disciples. It, it plants seeds of thought that cross and glory can be linked together because not even the darkness of the cross can overshadow the glory of God. But it's also true that no matter how great the glory of the transfiguration and the, and the resurrection, Jesus could not avoid the cross and neither can we. Now that's a hard message to understand. It's a hard message to embrace and even those who saw that with their own eyes, who saw the splendor of this transfigured Christ and those who heard with their own ears the words of the Father, this is my son whom I love, with him I am well pleased. Even they had a hard time grasping this message of glory and cross being linked together. It was so difficult for them to imagine that, that Jesus told them two more times he would die. He told them again he would be raised from the dead, but they still struggled to make sense of it all. But this is a fundamental truth of our faith, a fundamental paradox of our faith. If we don't come to terms with this, we don't fully understand the depths of our faith because we can never share in the glory of the life we're promised if we don't embrace the cross 
and a life of self-denial. And yet, the sufferings that we bear as followers of Christ cannot be enough to diminish the glory of life in God's presence. So years ago, in its wisdom, the church set aside a season to begin to get us ready to celebrate the resurrection. A season of six weeks we call Lent to direct our focus, to to set our vision to the way of the cross. It begins again this year, this Wednesday, on Ash Wednesday, and it stretches for six weeks, which is long enough, if we'll allow it to be, long enough to remind us that the call to follow Christ is not just a call to experience resurrection, it is that, but it's also a call to embrace the cross, which leads to resurrection. You see, there is never a resurrection except for resurrection from the dead. And we can't properly celebrate Easter if we've not made our journey to the cross. And so every year, right before the season of Lent begins, we focus, like we are this morning, on the transfiguration, this amazing display of the glory of God. But then we descend the mountain and we begin our march toward the cross. And during this season, the church has told us over centuries of wise practices that we begin with repentance and we begin then to practice again the the basics of our faith. We explore again the disciplines of a rhythm life that we know will help us grow spiritually. Because there's this dirty little secret that we don't always admit and that is that mountaintop experiences don't always last. Sometimes the growth we encounter there does not always last. Do you remember how Moses' first mountaintop experience on Sinai ended? He came down only to find his people worshiping a golden calf. He was so frustrated with that, he, he smashed the two tablets and had to start all over again. And Elijah comes down from this, dis, this dramatic display of God's power against the prophets of Baal And he comes down after God's splendor had been on full display. Elijah comes from the mountain with fear and depression and finds himself on the run begging God just to let him die. And Peter, who's seen all the splendor of the glory of God and has heard the father say, this is my son. Before long, Peter's denying that he ever even knew who Jesus was. So it doesn't always last. And yet some folks still have the idea that that's the only way to grow spiritually is just to wait for the next revival, the next retreat, the next youth camp. But there is another way. Without at all denying that the benefit of those moments with bursts of spiritual growth, there is a view that focuses on the rhythms of God's grace in our lives. In our Wesleyan tradition, we say that all growth comes by God's grace, not our effort. And we're never called to recreate a mountaintop experience. We are called to seek the God who makes those possible. We are called to seek the presence of God. We're called to seek his face. We're called to be on our face before him, bowing and worshiping him. We are called to seek God and his grace. And our growth comes by God's Holy Spirit and by God's grace being active in our lives. It's all about God's grace being at work within us. 
and the practices towards which we are directed, these are not ends, they are just means to an end. And so we develop the language, these are means of grace. John Wesley taught that there are ordinary channels that God uses to convey his grace to his people. To be a Methodist, there were three rules. Do good, avoid evil, and attend to the means of grace. Use the means that God has given us and commanded us and the experience and tradition have shown time and time again are channels of God's grace to be at work in our lives. So Wesley gave a list in his general rules, public worship of God, ministry of the word, the supper of the Lord, which for him was the grand channel of God's grace, family prayer, private prayer, searching the scriptures, fasting or abstinence. And so traditionally the the church has encouraged us to focus on these disciplines during the season of Lent. But we don't approach this as a transaction, but as a relationship. We're not focused on, well, we put in the time so God deserves to give us, we deserve for God to give us his grace. He owes us his grace. It's not that at all. It's simply we put ourselves in places where we know God's grace is present and we are fully present not like a sullen teenager sitting at the dinner table with headphones on shut out from the conversation. And not like a husband who says, well, I'll go to your family reunion, but don't expect me to talk to anyone. We show up and we're present and engaged. We attend to the means of grace being fully present. And we know that when we do that, God will show up in amazing ways. So this week we begin again the season of Lent, a time to focus on drawing near to God, a time to be intentional about our growth. Now from time to time, we may all have those bursts of spiritual growth that are like that summer between eighth grade and ninth grade when you got ready to go back to school and suddenly all the jeans that fit perfectly in May were about eight inches too short come August. We have those spurts sometimes, but most often, usually, Our growth is in small, steady increments as we continue to put ourselves in places where God's grace is. So as we begin the journey again this week into the season of Lent, let me encourage you to be intentional in your focus. Begin to get your eyes fixed on the cross and get a glimpse of God and his glory in light of the cross. Let's pray. Gracious God, we give you thanks for your promise that when we draw near to you, you draw near to us. For your promise that you desire to fill us to abundance of life. So Father, I pray for all of us that are gathered here this morning that in this season of Lent as we begin again this journey to focus on the cross and reflect on the ways in which cross and glory are linked together in the life of Christ, in our, in our own journey. I pray that you would help, help us to be attentive to your spiritual work among us. Help us to long for you, to seek you, and to expect your glory to be present. Guide us through this season. Help us to grow in our knowledge and love of you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. You have been listening to a message from Bethany First Church of the Nazarene. Visit us online 
at bethanynaz.org.